1: Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing. Like, why do clothes suck now? And is Paw Patrol copaganda or is it not that deep? And like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name – Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird, and it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday wherever you get your shows. Who knows, maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months.
0: Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Hannah McGregor. And I'm Marcel
1: Cosman, And today we're talking about the second novel in the Harry Potter series, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Without any ado whatsoever, let's get started with our first segment, the Sorting Chat.
0: A special thanks goes out to our listener, Matthew Domville, for renaming this segment for us. We do love a good pun here at Witch Please.
1: So I want to talk about um, reproductive rights and reproductive health care. Um, a few weeks ago, maybe a month or so ago now, uh, one of our listeners, Karina Soros, tweeted at us um, and asked us what we thought the reproductive healthcare situation was like in the wizarding world. And at the time, I couldn't really think of any specific examples of, of why it would be particularly positive but I've given it a lot of thought. It's been on my mind a lot lately because of various poster campaigns and inappropriate protests on campus, etc. And I have to say that I think that the novels give us a lot of information that allow us to draw conclusions about what the reproductive rights situation is um, in the wizarding world. So first of all, um, I want to talk about the Weasleys because the Weasleys are an anomaly. There are seven children, And we know that the Weasleys continued to have children until they had a girl. Ginny Weasley is the last child. And if you've seen all of the movies, you know that one of Ron's anxieties is that he's the least loved son because he's the last son that they had before they had a daughter. And at first, when I was thinking about this question, I was thinking about how the Weasleys had so many children. um, And so maybe that was evidence for the fact that um, there are not a lot of reproductive healthcare options for um, witches in the wizarding world. But then I thought about it and, and considered that the Weasleys are an exception. They're an anomaly. Um, and I think the fact that the Weasleys love all of their children tremendously is very indicative of the fact that they wanted all of those children, irrespective of the gender that those children ended up performing later on. And I think the fact also that so many other children in the wizarding world are only children or have one or two siblings um, is indicative of the fact that overall there must be relatively good access to um, birth control and to um, pregnancy termination technologies and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So not that long ago, I think it was around the time that we were recording our second episode, um, Hannah and I were talking about how this would even be possible? What would the situation be? And then all of a sudden we're like, oh my god, obviously potions. A potion, Potions. Obviously. Like, for sure. Like, the history of midwifery and the history of witchcraft are deeply related. And potions, once you know how to make a potion to either prevent the fertilization or the implantation of a fertilized egg... You you know how to make it. All you need is the recipe. And we know that these books that they read in the library and in the restricted section, yeah. etc., have been around for centuries. Yeah,
0: this is a form of actual potion making by actual real-life witches that we know has been happening throughout history. So there's no reason to believe that it wouldn't also be the case in this made-up magical world.
1: And recipes are not only passed down in books, but they're also passed down orally and through tradition and actual traditions of witchcraft. So this leads me to be confident that in the wizarding world, there is a much stronger and thriving tradition of women um, having control over their own reproductive choices.
0: Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Um, and I think that also connects to the second topic that we're going to take on in Sorting Chat, which is related to it um, to the incredible difficulty of enforcing laws in the wizarding world, okay. right? Even if um, some terrible minister of magic decided that he wanted to um, restrict women's reproductive rights, how the hell would he do it?
1: How can you undo? knowledge that has been passed down for centuries if not for millennia Um, and while maybe you could criminalize the creation of those potions because we know that some potions are heavily restricted we know that there are some curses that are also unforgivable but that being said people still do them Mm -hmm. people are still able to do them the only thing that stops you from doing them is actual moral rationale for not doing them
0: yeah i mean the closest thing we get to sort of uh the attempt to enforce laws is the image of mr weasley carefully writing loopholes into his own laws so that he can continue to break them <laughs> in ways that he finds enjoyable like the image of law enforcement that's presented for us in the wizarding world is either sort of absurdly uh superficial, Or, I mean, the other extreme of law enforcement in the Wizarding World is this really terrifyingly medieval, like, uh, there will be no jury. We're just Mm -hmm. going to lock you in this tower of terror now. Yeah, yeah.
1: Hagrid's Hagrid's arrest, both the one that happened 50 years ago that they refer to and his detention that takes place in the book once the Chamber of Secrets is open again and people start to lose their shit, (laughs) is just horrifying it's horrifying the hagrid's hagrid's terror at going back to azkaban is palpable as the reader of this novel you know that this place is is worse than death and Yet, this is where they take him just to be on the safe side, even though there's no evidence whatsoever that he was responsible for the crime committed in the first place, let alone the new crimes that have been happening again.
0: It's a distinct, it's a distinct failure to uphold like basic human rights in yeah. the wizarding world. It is really alarming when you realize that there is all of this sort of unchecked legal power, like, it's incredibly difficult to enforce the basic laws that they want to have. But when they decide that you have done something wrong, um, you yourself have no legal recourse. hmm.
1: Yeah, and we'll definitely see this a lot in the third book and in the fourth book as well when we start to um, revisit Azkaban with mm-hmm. Sirius Black and with um, Bertie Crouch Jr. So those are going to be uh, troubling and disturbing conversations to continue to have.
0: Oh, good. Yes. <laughs> I love when this whimsical Harry Potter podcast is full of troubling and disturbing conversations. just <laughs> about to get real. <laughs> Our second segment is Flourish and Blots in which we bring a book historical perspective to our reading of Harry Potter. I'm going to start us off in this section by saying that My story for this book is almost identical to the last one. That is, it's part of this box that I have of the first three books. But I'm beginning to suspect that I've never actually read these copies of the books. (laughs) I'm beginning to suspect that I read them. I either borrowed them from the library, borrowed them from a friend or family member when I read them initially. I don't think that I have actually cracked the spine on these books. And my reasoning behind that is not only that they're remarkably... Um, even suspiciously unstained. I'm very hard on my books and I really like reading in the bath. So most books that I have enjoyed in my life are in really bad condition. They also often have blood on them because I... um... Oh my god! (laughs) Never mind. (laughs) Um, But what I, I discovered, much to my delight when I actually read this copy of Chamber of Secrets, is that they've added this section at the back of it That's letters from, oh, Marcel has it too. (laughs) Yeah, it's mine too. That's letters from children. And I am not sure if I just, if this wasn't in the original copy that I read, or if just as a child myself, I had no interest in it. But like, I can't deal with how adorable these fan letters are, because they're all written in this amazing, carefully spaced children's handwriting where some of them the words are too close together and some of them the words are too far apart and they do that
1: thing where they slope gradually down the page (laughs) kids are so bad at handwriting also their like lack of awareness that a book series is a book series like this one letter says please please are you writing more about harry and hogwarts soon when like, of of course, it's like the first year, like as an adult, you read it and you're like, there are going to be seven more or something like that. Yeah. Um, but as a child, you're like, I love this book so much. Maybe she'll write more. It's beautiful.
0: Um, Yeah, yeah. The line, that's actually from the same letter. So obviously we both love Alexander Ben the most. (laughs) I love this child. But at the beginning he says, My mom loved it so much she would not let dad read any of it to me because she did not want to miss any of it as it was so exciting. Okay, but seriously
1: though, if this kid was seven and a quarter in 1997... This child is 24 years old now. This child is probably 25 years old. This person could have a master's degree. This child could have a master's degree. This child could have a spouse and cats.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Marcel is really into normative models of families. (laughs) All right. Do you have a story you'd like to share about this book?
1: Um, The only thing that is interesting about when I purchased this book is that when I went to the store to buy it, I wanted to buy this one and the third one, but I couldn't get my head around what the third book was called because Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, those are words. I know what those words are. And Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, those are also words with which I am familiar. (laughs) Chamber, yeah. Secrets, yeah. So I went there and I wanted... I went to the store and I wanted to buy the next two books because I was really into it at this point and I remember going up to the counter and saying I'm looking for Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets and the the prisoner one and the store clerk being like the prisoner of Azkaban she was really excited about it and I was like sure I have no idea what you just said like you just said mumbo-jumbo nonsense words yeah yeah um which now when I look back on I think is really cute and funny considering the fact that Azkaban just like makes such sense now that I'm now that I know what it is it doesn't make sense as etymologically
0: <laughs> but I get that it's a thing I get it yeah I mean maybe it does make sense etymologically sure I haven't looked it up Me I don't neither. speak Latin you neither would it let's, be like la- it wouldn't be Latin let's never look it up Azkaban I yeah well we'll never know. know we'll never find know. out maybe sounds-
1: someone will tweet at us with the actual origin of Azkaban yeah Next up is our third segment, The Boy Who Narrated, an examination of the unreliability of Harry Potter as a narrator.
0: All right, I'm going to start us off um, with uh, two scenes that really struck me in my reading and that are increasingly making me feel like this is a book that has been written, um, perhaps with a readership, a simultaneous readership of adults in mind, or with an awareness of that children can sort of read things at two levels Mm. but what i mean is that there are these moments where we are very carefully being provided with enough information to know whether or not we would make the same decisions that Harry and Ron and Hermione make in the situations that they do. Mm-hmm. And I feel as an adult reading it, that I often would not make the same decisions that they do. No. Um, and the scene of that really struck me um, is at nearly Headless Nick's death day party, where we're watching Nick get publicly humiliated at his own party by the Headless Hunt. The very Hunt who continuously
1: refuses to allow him to join because his head is still technically attached because his head is
0: still technically attached and there are all of these scenes where he's talking about like 12 strokes with a blunt axe should have been enough i mean it's horrific Mm -hmm. and he's this i mean a ghost is already such a liminal outsider figure and he's trying to find this world that he might belong and being constantly rejected from it um And he's invited the hunt with this really sort of tender hope that they'll be impressed by his party and maybe invite him to join. And not only are they not impressed by his party, but they publicly mock him Mm -hmm. and then proceed to put on a display that distracts everybody from his death day speech. And it's exactly at that moment where Nick is standing up and trying to, like, thank everybody for coming to his party. And the headless hunt is, like, playing a game of hockey with their own heads and distracting everybody from his speech, that Harry and Ron are like, uh, this party is super lame, we're out. <laughs> and they just, like, they decide they're cold and hungry, um, and they sneak out. Yeah. And the scene is so unambivalently tragic Mm -hmm. that I feel like that has to be a deliberate divide between um, what we can know as readers and how the children respond in the moment. Because I get that 12-year-olds are not always super good at empathy Mm -hmm. because it's a skill that they're still learning, which is why I feel like either that's in there for adult readers or it's in there as a sort of way of starting to teach Mm -hmm. 12-year-old readers Empathy, yeah. right? Of showing these scenes where children are not responding um, in a caring way to the situations around them, so that maybe you, as a reader, encounter that and think like, "Oh, that wasn't very nice. Mm-hmm. Maybe it would have been nice for them to stay, even though the party wasn't fun." Yeah,
1: yeah. I do, I do agree. I think it is thematic um, because, of the, although this is a different, it's a different emotional example. But at the very beginning of the novel, when when Ron and Harry can't get through platform nine and three-quarters, and their first thought is to steal his father's flying car, rather than, as Professor McGonagall very obviously points out to them when they do arrive at the school, sending a goddamn owl to the school. We know that owls travel faster than light. I we don't know <laughs> we don't know how or why, but we know that they do. And yet it does not occur to them to send an owl for help or to. And I know Ron is panicked. He's like, "What if mom and Dad can't get back through?" I know he's panicked.
0: But, it's such bad decision making. Yeah,
1: and they don't fly to the secret side of the platform to reunite with his parents. They like fly away from. They fly to Hogwarts. It's not. It's not clear headed. It's impulsive. It's rash. And it's stupid. Like it's a really stupid choice. And they realize how stupid that choice is when they do arrive. So I do think that there's an undercurrent in this book of um, children making poor choices <laughs> that you can't always just jump to conclusions. Sometimes you have to like think it out and maybe wait 10 minutes. Yeah. Just like wait 10 minutes.
0: The other big thing that I really want to talk about in this section um, is the Slytherins. Do we want to jump right into that? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so I defended the Slytherins pretty wholeheartedly when we talked about the first book. I kept saying, like, they're just children. They are also a group of children Mm who have been sorted into one of four houses that we have no reason to believe is any worse than the other houses. Until we get to (laughs) this book. Until we get to this book, which, much to my surprise, I find out that the... Origin story of Hogwarts involves one of their four founders being essentially a genocidal maniac, <laughs> right? Like we just find out that the Slytherins have always believed in this sort of purity of the bloodlines discourse, which is so obviously a reference to Nazism.
1: Right. Yeah, we should talk about even the term mudblood too, right? Because it's not we don't th- well, what is the word? What is the actual word? Um, They use mudblood a lot, but they use it derisively.
0: What's the non-derisive word? I don't think that there is a word. I don't think that you have a word for lack of racial purity if you're not a secret Nazi. (laughs) Okay, Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. (laughs) I mean, I might be wrong, but my my recollection is that... um, When they explain what a mudblood is to Hermione, it's just a wizard who comes from non magical parents.
1: I think it might, yeah, it might just be a shitty way to say muggle born. Muggle born. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's what they say. Um, And that's, you know, that's muggle born as a term. um, Again, it's just sort of this neutral representation of like your parents were something and you're something else. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas mudblood, is an incredibly hateful turn mm-hmm. um, that does have all of these really creepy eugenicist undertones to it. And the fact that we are told that Salazar Slytherin hated mudbloods and didn't want them in his school and created a secret chamber of terror and monstrosity for the purpose of ethnic cleansing... Mm-hmm. Makes it really hard for me to continue to read the Slytherins as just one of the four houses. Mm -hmm. Um, What is making me hold out against agreeing with this, like agreeing with this, like Slytherins are just terrible, is two things. One of them is... That I do not believe for a second that they would allow Slytherin to continue to be a house at Hogwarts if the thing that Slytherin stood for unambiguously was ethnic cleansing. Mm-hmm. I I agree. Yeah. yeah, which is which is causing me to sort of read this as, again, part of the children's perspective, mm-hmm. right? Part of this kids are not well trained in perceiving ambiguity Mm -hmm. they're being told this story that casts the world in very black and white terms Mm -hmm. um, and they just sort of receive it uncritically and there's a good example that marcel picked out of a moment where we see this story getting told to them and they receive it uncritically but then later on we come to realize it might be less than true
1: Mm -hmm. so early on in the series hagrid tells harry about slytherin there wasn't a witch or wizard who went bad who wasn't from Slytherin. That is to say, all of the wizards who go bad were sorted into Slytherin.
0: <laughs> this you. is thank you for clarifying. Hagrid's double negative. <laughs> <laughs>
1: There's so, it's, it's hard. I just just want to be I just want to be super clear. Okay, except that we're gonna find out in the third book that Sirius Black is in Azkaban because he was working with Voldemort and was the reason why James and Lily Potter were assassinated.
0: Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Commence Obliviate in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1.
1: And of course, we'll then find out that he was, in fact, framed, (gasps) but by another Gryffindor. He was framed by Peter Pettigrew. Peter Pettigrew was also a Gryffindor. They were James and Sirius and Peter and Lupin were
0: all friends in Gryffindor. I'm going to clarify something. I looked it up on the internet. I know I promised we would never look things up. I don't, but I can't even handle what you're doing right now. The person who says there isn't a witch or wizard who went bad, who wasn't from Slytherin is wrong. No, that's in the movie. It's not in the book. Is this a transcript of the movie? I don't know. You're the one who looked it up in the
1: internet. That was I a bad know, idea. I don't know
0: how the internet works. Yeah. That is not correct. Nope, that is Where from the is movie. Where is it
1: from? Is it
0: from the movie? It's for
1: sure from the movie, because I
0: remember... So Hagrid says it in the
1: book. Yeah, and he says it, I believe, when they're in Diagon Alley. Better Hufflepuff than Slytherin, said Hagrid darkly. There's not a single witch or wizard who went bad who wasn't in Slytherin. You know who was one. And this doesn't make any sense, because at this point in time, Hagrid would know that Sirius Black was imprisoned for betraying James and Lily Potter and for their assassination. And we know that Sirius Black was the only one in the Black family who was ever sorted into Gryffindor. So it just
0: doesn't doesn't hold water. It doesn't add up. Hagrid, your
1: racism doesn't stand up to the test.
0: Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's Hagrid exhibiting prejudice, um, which is a poor show for somebody who, on the surface, is also available to some pretty ungenerous judgments. (laughs) the introduction of the story of Salazar Slytherin and of this secret chamber that he has hidden within Hogwarts which is there for the purpose of ethnic cleansing was -hmm. extremely disturbing for me and I think is part of this sort of the problem of it and the problem of the Slytherins in general and the problem of evil in the wizarding world is something that I think we're going to see changing and becoming more nuanced as the protagonists mature Mm
1: -hmm. yeah yeah for sure so carrying on with our conversation about uh harry's biased narration um i also think it's worth talking about the the dueling scene um when malfoy uh shoots a snake at harry and then for some reason the snake starts going after justin finch fletchley um whatever (laughs) Whatever nope. that name is. Nailed it. Um, and Harry starts to speak parcel tongue to it um to convince it not to attack Justin. Um and Harry does not understand why everyone freaks out, and it's Ron who has to explain to him later. Ron is shocked to hear that Harry was telling the snake not to attack. But when you're reading it, so when we're reading it from Harry's perspective, it makes perfect sense. He's like, Hey snake, be cool, snake.
0: Be <laughs> hey, cool. Hey. Could you just be cool for one second?
1: Just be cool, okay? But then Ron is like, whoa, that's what you were saying? It sounded like you were egging it on. And that is not how it reads to us at all. No. Not even close. Like, I, I actually looked for that and then went back to it and tried to reread it in some
0: way that would, like, make space for that kind of interpretation. Mm-hmm. And it just doesn't fit. Yeah. And isn't that interesting? Because the novel spends so much time. Building in the space for us to have different interpretations of particular scenes. Um, and that's one where it's made totally impossible for us, mm-hmm. right? And that's part of sort of a thread that goes through the whole book, which is Harry's concern that he might actually be evil, Mm -hmm. right? That Harry has this anxiety that he was really supposed to be in Slytherin. And at this point, he believes that if you're a Slytherin, you're evil. Mm -hmm. He speaks (sighs) Parseltongue. He has, he's hearing voices. Mm -hmm. He's afraid he might be insane. He's hearing voices that are specifically saying, now
1: I'm going to kill, strike and kill and that kind of
0: thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's really terrifying. And in those scenes rather than having the critical space to sort of get outside and share in other characters perception of harry as potentially a villain you are suddenly so deep inside harry's perspective that you cannot for a second mistake harry for possibly the villain of the piece Mm -hmm. right you're very deliberately sort of put inside of his head there um So that when you get the revelation at the end, you know, the final scene where Dumbledore imparts some important wisdom to you. As he does. I love those scenes so much. (laughs) So in that final scene in Dumbledore's office, Dumbledore says to Harry, it's our choices, Harry, that show what we truly are far more than our abilities. Mm -hmm. Um, And in terms of the choices that Harry makes... We are, you know, deeply inside him as a character when we see the kinds of choices he makes. We can't necessarily see the way other people are perceiving him. Mm -hmm. We can see the choices that he makes and the impact that they have on the world around him. And so that lesson comes through in what sort of distinguishes him from the Slytherins, but it also comes true in those moments where he's maybe less compassionate than he could be.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very Anabaptist, as you brought up in our last episode.
0: So (laughs) Anabaptist.
1: I just want to make a passing reference to the fact that um, at the very end of the semester, apparently Professor McGonagall announces to the school that Dumbledore has decided to cancel exams as a school treat. I just want to say that that is ludicrous and that that absolutely must be an example of Harry's bias narration because this is a world where there's no... I'm gonna wait until that siren stops. (laughs) So this is a world where they don't have college and university for additional training beyond high school. This is a world where the magical skills that you develop, presumably you continue to develop those skills throughout your life, But the idea is that after your seven years of magical education, you are equipped to enter into the magical world as a professional. So if we are relying on your on your school to facilitate that transition process by providing you with things that we learn later are called owls and newts. It is impossible that they could cancel those exams because otherwise you would have an entire year of students (laughs) who have no actual um, evidence of their abilities. Who just have no actual
0: qualifications. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, it's cool. This generation of young wizards will just be... um, uncertified yeah. as professionals. Like it's
1: nonsense. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. The only thing that I think is possible is that it is an announcement that is made to the junior students. The students who don't actually have exams to place them in somewhere significant. They're just mm-hmm. showing what they've learned. It's
0: such a good moment. It's such a children's book moment <laughs> because it's like oh hooray! No exams! And as both adults and instructors, Marcel and I are we're both like, uh, which please?
1: <laughs> I was outraged. I was just outraged. <laughs> oh because this-
0: Check your schedule, second years. It's time for potions class, our take on the pedagogical methods of the Hogwarts staff. And I think we need to start and end and spend almost all of our time talking about Gilderoy Lockhart. Absolutely. I mean, who, what other teacher is even,
1: other than Snape, obviously, is really worth the close scrutiny
0: that Gilderoy Lockhart deserves? There's, so I'm going to start off by saying that Lockhart means one thing to you when you are reading him as a child and then means something so, so much more painful to you when you're reading him as an academic. (laughs) <laughs> because this overblown, self-involved white man white, who has white, able-bodied, white, heterosexual, able-bodied man. heterosexual man who has published seven books that are in fact all about the same thing that are just rehashing the same thesis over and over again, who has obviously cribbed other people's research um, in order to prop up his own overinflated career, <laughs> is such a painful metaphor oh, God. for the academic star system
1: absolutely and you could ask them whatever question you wanted and they would totally have an answer for you they were authoritative but they weren't like they weren't like super strict and then by the time you get to your senior levels and you end up taking courses with those instructors again and then you realize that they're actually just like full of garbage they're just <laughs> full of hot air And that hot air has come from the fermenting garbage that they are
0: full of. And this is what Gilderoy Lockhart is like. Lockhart is a garbage person. Um, He's a garbage human. He is terrible. There's only one thing I like about Lockhart. And that is that Lockhart is a perfect foil for Snape. Mm -hmm. Because Lockhart is pretty and charming and... Um, entirely empty Mm -hmm. whereas Snape has a pretty bad attitude (laughs) but is an incredibly competent wizard Mm -hmm. Um, and that really comes to the fore in the beautiful scene in the dueling club where Snape comes so so close to murdering Lockhart which would have been a really really good alternate version of that scene.
1: But I don't understand what Lockhart was thinking when he suggested that he and Snape duel Like, he knows that he's incompetent. He does know that. And that's why he wipes people's memories and steals their stories and their work and publishes stories about it under his own name
0: I think maybe what Lockhart doesn't know is that Snape doesn't really care about like behaving appropriately in front of children oh, okay. and so Lockhart probably okay. expected that Snape would sort of just go through the motions mm-hmm. I mean keep in mind also that Snape volunteered yes. Lockhart didn't ask Snape Snape okay. was like oh a chance to publicly shame you that sounds great and so lockhart probably was not anticipating exactly how ferociously snape would lean into this mm-hmm. opportunity to shame him in front of the children but it's such it's such a wonderful scene because We get a sense of the value of Snape as a character, Mm -hmm. um, which is that he is sort of all content and no show, whereas Lockhart is all show and no content. Mm -hmm. And that Snape, we're constantly getting fooled by Snape's appearances, right? Because he's an asshole. And so you mistake him being an asshole for him being evil. And then we constantly have to be reminded as readers that being an asshole and being evil are not the same thing. Fundamentally different things. Fundamentally different things. And important when you yourself are an asshole, you appreciate that kind of message
1: if we are believing that this is a world in which evil exists Lockhart himself would be an evil character the way that he behaves at the end of the novel when he is willing to leave Ginny for dead and he is willing to obliviate Harry and Ron's memories and then take credit for saving them and leaving Ginny there to die just to look good that is despicable
0: Yeah. Yeah, it absolutely is. And so it is a good, you know, a good lesson in not believing surfaces. Mm -hmm. Right. So the other important lesson we get in this book about appearances being deceiving is the revelation that the way the rest of the world sees Hagrid is maybe a little different from the way we see Hagrid. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's the sort of revelation that Hagrid might have been the one who opened the Chamber of Secrets and that he has this history of an unfortunate fondness for monsters, Mm -hmm. which is a really sympathetic quality in him as a character, right? Hagrid loves the abnormal, the unusual, what is monstrous to others is mm-hmm. lovable to Hagrid, and that is what makes him so remarkable, but it also makes him like incredibly dangerous. And as we'll see in future books, a super bad teacher.
1: <laughs> I think what's really touching about that is that Hagrid is himself something that could be considered monstrous. And so His love of this giant goddamn spider, Aragog, which gets him into a tremendous amount of trouble and gets Harry and Ron into significantly more trouble than Hagrid. It's a reflection on Hagrid's own desire to be loved and to be seen as the gentle creature that he that he is. But I think the irony is... You just broke my heart. (laughs) But the irony in this is that Hagrid's love of monsters, Hagrid's love of things that are actually quite dangerous, is the thing that makes him dangerous. And it is the thing that allows Tom Riddle to frame him. So Hagrid's love of the monstrous is this thing that facilitates his own monstrosity
0: yeah oh no Hagrid right and so Hagrid is another example of this character who I mean it's kind of the reverse because we see Hagrid as so sympathetic right we love him so much as a character from early on because he is this sweet gentle soul who has brought Harry into the wizarding world Mm -hmm. um, and who is kind of like his gruff uncle and we forgive Hagrid all of his his imperfections the fact Mm -hmm. that he makes Treacle fudge that glues your jaw together. Um, the fact that his idea of an appropriate thing to do for detention is to lead children out <laughs> into the woods and then leave them there alone, or
1: that a gift to a to an eleven-year-old boy could possibly be a murderous
0: owl. Owl's <laughs> gonna kill him. <laughs> we also misjudge Hagrid to some degree when we forgive him too hastily i think because suggesting to the children when he is being arrested that they should go into the forbidden forest and follow the spiders is sending 12 year olds to their guaranteed death
1: yeah i mean i know
0: they don't die i'm gonna stand by that being guaranteed death
1: Yeah, the only reason that they don't die is because they did that really dumb thing at the beginning of the book where they drove the car through the air to Hogwarts and the car just happened to have some kind of
0: affection for Ron for setting it free. Really, the only reason they don't die is because Mr. Weasley is so good at charming inanimate objects (laughs) that he not only made the car able to fly, but he gave it a essentially compassionate, if semi-feral personality.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so Hagrid makes some terrible choices, sending the children into the forbidden forest to follow the spiders and encounter Aragog was uh definitely a solid example of Hagrid's own inability to understand that monsters have choices as well and that just because they choose to be kind to Hagrid in return to his in return for his own kindness does not mean that they will extend that That kindness onto all humans.
0: And just there are some things you should do with children and other things that you shouldn't. Like a dueling club, right? (laughs) Uh, Also a thing probably that's not appropriate for children. Um, Not children who are learning magic for the first time. Yeah. I mean that's like incompetent wizard fight club. Like that's gonna (laughs) end in tears. And we know that the rest of the professors at Hogwarts know that lockhart is incompetent so why do they let him start a dueling club like are they are they overly confident in their own ability to fix anything that goes tragically wrong with the children
1: yeah i wonder i wonder if they are so certain of lockhart's own incompetence his own inability to teach the children anything that they must be fairly confident that he can't teach them how to harm one another (laughs) like that must be and and if we think about what actually happens during the dueling club the only person who actually causes harm to anybody else is malfoy through instructions from snape snape is the one who tells malfoy whatever spell it is he whispers it in his ear and then malfoy makes a snake out of thin air yeah
0: all yeah. of a sudden, apparently, Malfoy is really good at transfiguring snakes. That anyway. He didn't transfigure the snake. The no, snake no. emerged from the tip of his wand, which is an unbelievably phallic image. <laughs> so there is that. Uh, the other note that I want to bring up on the topic of pedagogy is... Um, what is going to become a really important theme throughout the rest of the series, um, and we really see it being introduced for the first time in this book, which is the interference of politics into what is supposed to be a pedagogical institution, Mm -hmm. right? There's an ideal that Hogwarts itself should be autonomous and separate from politics Mm -hmm. and that it should be a space that the headmaster gets to rule as he sees fit, right? And that's sort of idealized, like everything would be fine if... Everybody would just leave Dumbledore alone and let him handle the situation. And things go wrong when Cornelius Fudge comes bumbling in and says that, like, the Wizarding PTA or whatever the hell that they are, like the (laughs) Board of Governors. Please, Wizarding PTA. The Wizarding PTA has decided that they don't like the way that Dumbledore is running it. And so the government is going to interfere into this supposedly autonomous pedagogical institution Mm -hmm. and kick Dumbledore out and leave the school under the rule of the charming, but substantially less competent professor McGonagall. And, you know, everything goes super badly after that decision is made. And I find this actually a little disturbing, not The image of politics intervening into Hogwarts, but the implied ideal, which is that politics should have no effect whatsoever on schools, Mm -hmm. that schools should be entirely untouched by the political world, that um, they are somehow tainted by a sort of PTA that gets to have an impact on what the... Um, headmaster does and Mm -hmm. that the headmaster himself is a irreproachable source of authority Um, Mm -hmm. because what that sort of argues in general is an image, this really old-fashioned ivory tower image of what the school should be Mm -hmm. as a sort of pure space outside of politics.
1: Yeah, yeah. It presupposes that education can ever be apolitical, which we know that it can't because for years when we thought of the school as apolitical, it's just because we didn't consider our own politics to be politics. So when a school supports your politics or when a school um, is run by politics with which you identify they become invisible. They just Mm. become normal and natural. And it only becomes political when somebody gets controversial or when someone wants to introduce an idea that um, is foreign to you or alien to you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so we have this image of um, Hogwarts being a space that isn't saturated by the same kind of totalitarian power that we see in the rest of the wizarding world. Mm -hmm. And that that becomes, you know. For example, when Umbridge arrives, right? Mm -hmm. We see that sort of the this ideal of Hogwarts getting polluted. But in fact, wait
1: until we talk about Umbridge.
0: Oh, I love Umbridge. But in fact, that idea is we're only allowed to enjoy that fantasy because Dumbledore's totalitarian rule is benevolent, Mm -hmm. right? Like, it's really easy to forget that you live in a police state when you are consenting to the rules that the police state has imposed. And I totally just compared Dumbledore to a police state.
1: Well, he is literally the patriarchy, right? He is literally an able-bodied white man. We learn later through paratext that he is a gay man, but he is nevertheless a patriarch, Mm -hmm. right? And so he and his...
0: Gentle beardiness.
1: He and his gentle beardiness, (laughs) the way in which his gentle beardiness white man rule is reified in that school i think is a really perfect example of the insidiousness of the patriarchy Mm -hmm. and how it just slips in there and has its control over everything and you don't see it until it is suddenly made foreign to you so when umbridge shows up and starts to God damn it, we're not on book five yet, but I'm going to say this anyway. (laughs) When Umbridge shows up and starts to exact her own authority, the experience of a person having political authority over the school is made strange because it's a woman and because it's not what we were used to already. I'm going to stop talking about Umbridge right now. And now... Dear listeners, we hope you will join us as we journey into the Forbidden Forest. This is where we talk about race and class and bodies and other things you're not supposed
0: to bring up at dinner parties. And in this case, Uh, I think we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about Dobby. Oh, yes. Um, because we get the exciting revelation in book two that in addition to all of its other problematic aspects, the wizarding world also contains socially sanctioned slavery. Surprise!
1: And that'll get oodles more complicated in the later books.
0: But if we start with this one right now, what we
1: have is a system in which wealthy old money wizarding families have slaves and they inherit those slaves. They pass those slaves down generation after generation It is impossible to employ house elves, as we know currently. We will learn things differently later on. But Ron tells us that he wishes or his mom wishes that they had a house elf because she could really use
0: help around the house. She really used help that she didn't have to pay for and that itself did not have to consent to the conditions of labor. (laughs) That would be really handy. The thing about inheriting an immortal and powerful slave is that the actual social conditions that cause slavery to be inconvenient to the slaveholding class in the U.S., which is that it is expensive to be fully responsible for other humans to have to take care of them and feed them. And then in fact, it makes more financial sense to pay them a really shitty wage and make them take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. That's not actually an issue when your slaves are immortal and magical. You don't have to worry about taking care of them. You can abuse the shit out of them and they're always going to recover and they're never going to die Mm -hmm. and their laboring bodies will never be exhausted. Oh my God. It's horrifying. It's really horrifying. And
1: I think even we only encountered Dobby – three times in this book. We encounter him at the beginning at the Dursleys' house, we encounter him briefly in Harry's hospital room, and then we encounter him again at the very end when he's being physically dragged by Lucius Malfoy. In those three encounters, it is undeniable that he is physically and emotionally and psychologically abused. So his slavery is not just an issue of being exploited as labor. He's also being tortured in that position. And I think we're encouraged to see this as pretty typical. Mm -hmm. And when we encounter other house elves later, we'll we'll see more of this. But Dobby expresses signs that his treatment is extreme,
0: but it's not unusual. Mm -hmm. It's not uncommon. And Perhaps the most horrifying aspect of how house elves work is that the magic that controls them also forces them to punish themselves physically when they stop consenting to the terms of their own slavery, such that they're caught in this sort of horrifying trap of non-consensual consent. Mm-hmm. Right? That they have to consent to their own slavery because they have to punish themselves when they try to resist it. It's absolutely monstrous. I mean, the book is telling us that it is monstrous, right? Mm-hmm. The book is setting up this horror for us. And yet, I find myself wondering why this is part of the wizarding world. Mm-hmm. Like, why introduce into the wizarding world this image of a horrific version of slavery? That is legal mm-hmm. and because it's legal and because it's associated with wealth and power is sanctioned. Mm-hmm. right? Even that sort of aside where Ron says, "My mom really wishes we'd inherit it. We'd inherit one. It's socially sanctioned. Mm-hmm. And we see the horror of it. But the world around Harry does not seem to acknowledge that horror. Mm-hmm. And the way that Dobby is treated in this book is as, a comic character who sort of semi-hilariously keeps screwing things up for Harry in ways that cause hijinks to ensue. You know what it's time for? Mm -hmm. Jew watch.
1: There are no Jews in this book I checked. Short segment this week.
0: (laughs) It's time For the penultimate segment in our podcast, but the ultimate one in our hearts, Granger Danger. A.K.A. Feminism Corner.
1: You have a lot of thoughts
0: about Hermione and Lockhart. So why don't you... So many thoughts and so so many feelings. Here Here is my stance in relation to Hermione. I believe her to be an objectively fantastic character and so when she's not being fantastic in the book i am mad not at hermione but at the book yeah. i believe that the book has done her a disservice and i believe that this book does hermione a disservice as a character because there are three key things hermione does in this book one is be embarrassingly fatuous about lockhart <laughs> Mm -hmm. Two is do the polyjuice potion wrong Mm -hmm. so that she has to hide Mm -hmm. in the bathroom while Harry and Ron go and question Malfoy. And three, get petrified and basically be out of the rest of the book. Mm -hmm. She spends an exceptional amount of time
1: in the hospital wing because she's in the hospital wing looking a bit like a cat Mm -hmm. or or a furry. And... She's back in the hospital wing when she gets petrified.
0: Yeah, she spends half the book in the hospital wing. And that just sets her up as being this, like, sad, weak character, right? It's this sort of replication of the image of women as a source of moral strength that is equivalent with physical weakness, which is, like, a gross old trope of gothic novels. And the other version of... The female character who replaces Hermione while she's in the hospital the entire time is Ginny. Ginny will get cool. Yes. Ginny is not cool now. Oh no. Ginny is so lame
1: now. Well, okay, but to Ginny's credit, it's not her fault that she's super uncool right now because she's being terrorized by Tom fucking
0: Riddle's horcrux. Absolutely. I don't blame Ginny just like I don't blame (laughs) Hermione because it's never women's fault. The patriarchy is never women's fault. It's true. What is at fault here is a reproduction of female characters as victims, which is happening throughout this book.
1: I'm a little bit tempted to argue that if this book is in many ways reproducing gothic tropes, because it is definitely a dark gothic version of the Harry Potter world, I hate talking about authorial intention, so I have no interest in doing that. But I just wonder if, I wonder if we can, if we can just read it as that, if we can like problematize it and question it and see it as maybe... An indication of how lousy that trope is, Mm -hmm. right? So if we think of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets as the gothic Harry Potter book, Mm -hmm. and that this trope of women as weak and easily susceptible to the whims of cruel men, that that's like really unsatisfying.
0: Yeah. I don't yeah. know. That's I, you know, what? I actually really like that reading because right. it is such a gothic novel, right? The hidden chamber, mm-hmm. the secret diaries, like all of these things are so gothic. And like classic gothic novel, we get ladies fainting. Yeah. I mean, even Mrs. Norris <laughs> gets screwed over. It's just a bad, there's a bad scene for women
1: mm-hmm. across
0: the entire novel. The other sort of possible reading that I think is available as we think through what is happening to Hermione in this book actually also ties into the gothic because the gothic is a lot about surfaces and the difference between sort of what how things appear Mm -hmm. and what's actually happening underneath and the importance of being able to read surfaces Mm -hmm. and what we see in this book is the possibility of Hermione being Despite the fact that she is the book's model of what a reader looks like, she's not always a very good reader, Mm -hmm. right? Hermione has a great deal of faith in authority figures and a great deal of faith in books, Mm -hmm. right? You pointed out that great scene where she's going off to the library to solve the problem and Ron says, that's what Hermione does. She goes to the library, Mm -hmm. right? That's what she does. She believes that the answers to her problems can be found either in human personifications of authority aka professors Mm -hmm. or physical personifications of authority aka books and her belief in the power of these things is so uncomplicated at this point and her consent to authority so largely unchallenged that we see her doing these kinds kind of embarrassing things right Mm -hmm. like taking Lockhart at face value and believing that he is the man he presents himself to be in his books. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, maybe it's encouraging you to be a little bit more suspicious of authority mm-hmm. and to not believe everything you read in a book. Definitely don't always believe your narrator.
1: At long last, we have arrived at our final segment, Final Revisions, in which we take turns asking each other pressing questions. It's my turn to ask the questions this week and Hannah's turn to answer them. All right, I have a couple of questions. I'm so excited. So my first question, Ginny sees Percy and Penelope Clearwater doing something that makes everybody real embarrassed. And at the end... She says that she saw them kissing. Is that really what she saw?
0: Absolutely not. No way. Percy is too old at this point to be (laughs) embarrassed to be seen kissing with a girl. Right? So whatever they were doing inside that room is more embarrassing than kissing. We know that Ginny as a character is somebody who's really unlikely to tell on Percy. And so that kissing is very likely to be um, something much more mild and harmless um, that she could sort of replace the actual event with so that Fred and George can tease him, Mm -hmm. but nobody will know the dark truth. Mm -hmm.
1: I also wonder if maybe what she saw was something that she did not entirely understand. Because if she's 11, she may not understand what all of the sex acts
0: are so let's go ahead and assume we have one other scene of the ravenclaw prefect in which she is like super badass Mm -hmm. um and then we have these images of percy as i would argue um a bottom Mm -hmm. um and so i assume that what jenny saw and did not understand was the ravenclaw prefect pegging percy
1: That is not where I thought you were going to go with that, but I'm into it. That's my answer. Okay, great. That sounds great. Uh, If you don't know what pegging is, that's your responsibility. You can go to autostraddle.com and uh, help yourself. Okay, question the second. The Chamber of Secrets opens from the girls' lavatory. I would like to know if this is a feminist subtext. Let me follow it with a sub-question. You think about that for now. The... First person that Tom Riddle kills is Moaning Myrtle. It's a girl. He carries Ginny's body down into the Chamber of Secrets and leaves her there to die. Also, Ginny looks like a child version of Harry's mother because she has flaming red hair, just like Harry's mother did. And we know that Voldemort would go on to murder Lily Potter, as well as lots of other people. So my question is... Does Tom Riddle slash Voldemort have a problem with women? And is his problem with women complicated by the feminist subtext of having the Chamber of Secrets open from the girls' lavatory? What I'm wondering is if Salazar Slytherin could have foreseen that a female heir would one day open the Chamber of Secrets. Complicated
0: questions. Such a complicated question. All right, I'm going to answer that by starting off with pointing out that the familiar association of uh, snakes with evil in Christian mythology has been linked by a lot of feminist scholars to an attempt by early Christians to vilify Pre-Christian pagan religions oh. in which the snake was, in fact, a representative of a sort of chthonic earth magic. Okay. Chthonic just means from the earth, but it's a really good word and I like to say it a lot. And so the snake is a sort of image of a pagan pre-Christian chthonic Um, an incredibly um, sort of woman-centric version of what magic looks like. Mm. Other popular images of the Chthonic include subterranean caves, which are themselves a sort of physical symbol of the womb, Mm -hmm. right? And so here we have the Chamber of Secrets as this incredibly Chthonic space, Mm -hmm. right? That is accessed via the women's laboratory. So it's already been gendered for us right from the beginning we're being told that this is a female space you enter into it it is a subterranean cave and so it's a metaphor for a womb Mm -hmm. and it's dominated by this giant snake Mm -hmm. which is itself um a figure of the earth goddess and so the entire image of the chamber of secrets feels like in fact hogwarts has buried underneath it this ancient pagan Um, holy site. So take that and then add in the image of the sort of consistent sacrifice of women, Mm -hmm. right? We know that most of the people who are victims are themselves women. um, And that uh, that sort of locates, even while it is a sort of victimization of women, it continues to also locate women as the source of power, right? Mm -hmm. It is Ginny's life force that gives Tom Riddle the ability to, Um, regain control of himself to regain corporeal form Mm -hmm. which actually means that Tom Riddle himself is powered by female energy. Mm -hmm. Tom Riddle is basically just a woman wearing the sort of outside appearance of his previous male self. Mm -hmm. So there's all of these amazing sort of feminist images but they're cast as evil Mm -hmm. and my concern is that this drawing on sort of the chthonic um, uh, the sort of exotic affiliations with the snake, with human sacrifice, is in fact part of what I have argued is the ongoing orientalizing of mm-hmm. Voldemort as a figure. Thank you, our most magical listeners, for joining us for episode three of Witch, Please. You can find our first two episodes on our very fancy new website, owitchplease.ca. That's O H w-i-t-c-h-p-l-e-a-s-e dot c-a. Check out our Twitter at please and our Tumblr, com. It really, really makes our day when you tweeted us, so please keep doing that.
1: As always, special thanks to our erstwhile tech support, Trevor Chow Fraser. And extra special thanks this week goes to everyone who offered a suggestion for our new sign-off. Savannah G., Catherine Maloche, Brandon Kay. Emily Hoven, Jason Purcell, Karina M, and our newest mega fan, Neil Barnholden. They were all wonderful and special in their own ways, just like you, and it was a close contest. But just like the House Cup, there can only truly be one winner that found its way into our hearts. So until next time, this has been Witch Please. Later, witches.